We recently launched Liberation Martial Arts Online for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chud-free, or perhaps one that came directly from us. Thanks to Shireen Asha Murugaya, Beekeeper Apprentice, and Sean Donahue for signing up. If you would like to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online, or you just want to increase your financial support of the Southpaw Project, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. If you'd like to listen to all of our shows without any breaks or interruptions, you can find uncut versions of our shows also on Patreon. This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. Coach Jason and I are back with another edition of Fight Study. We're going to look at one of my new favorite fights of all time, Armand Sarukian versus Mateus Gamrod. Then we're going to discuss the performance of Shafkat Rachmanov over Neil Magny. Then we'll try to preview some fights from UFC 276. But to be honest, I was more hyped about the Sarukian-Gamrod fight than any fight on the upcoming pay-per-view. Now, since we had two incredible wrestling-intensive fights, we had to bring in our in-house wrestling correspondent, Coach Zach Goldrosen. Zach is notorious for hating the wrestling in every MMA fight, but the Saruki and Gamera card with the main and co-main actually impressed Coach Zach. That's how good it was. If you haven't watched those fights, go find it somewhere and watch it. So let's talk about the main event, Saruki and versus Gamrot, which was a close fight with Gamrot taking the decision. I didn't agree, but I didn't hate the decision. But I want to get a consensus from both of you. Let's start with you, Zach. How did you feel about that decision? It felt fair to me. I could see how someone could. I uh, gave it to Sarukian, but I, mean, I think calling it you know, a robbery would be a little bit of a stretch. And Jason? I tend to agree with Zach. I mean, um, I, I gave the fight to Sarukian uh, based on the, the spinning back fist knockdown in the fourth round and after giving him the first two. Um, I thought Gamrot looked fantastic, but I thought Sarukian did just a bit more damage and uh, the body kicks added up enough to where I would, uh, I'd feel comfortable giving Sarukian the nod. But I have, I have, I mean, it's one of those fights where both, both fighters, their stock rose and like, there were no losers here, especially from a fan's perspective. Now, Zach. What did you think about the overall wrestling from both in this fight? Um, it was awesome. Um, I, I keep a higher standard uh, for wrestling in MMA than most because my standard is watching high-level wrestling. But this was so good that it, um, it made me break character. <laughs> <laughs> now, they were both obviously good, but it seemed like they had different strengths. Can you analyze their styles for us and whether cardio began to play a factor? So Sarukin was definitely a little more aggressive early on. He had never been in a five-rounder before that, um, this weekend, so maybe he was in sort of the spot that a lot of college freshman wrestlers end up in their first couple matches. Cause high school, the periods go two minutes, two minutes, two minutes. College, it goes three minutes, two minutes, two minutes. So a lot of times you'll see someone in their first college match and yeah, that, that first period, adding on one extra minute, it just, it sucks. So add on another 10 minutes. Um, they both, uh, they're both good athletes who do simple things well at a fast pace, and that's pretty much always going to look good. Um, the thing that stood out about Gamrot was that he kept the grappling sequences alive and his chances of winning those sequences alive through good scrambling, just not giving up on the position, not down on the position or, or anything like that because he's constantly looking and moving and looking for other options. Even if he's not in good position to start, he's usually able to find something that he can work to his benefit just by, by continuing to look. And that's something you build in the practice room just by putting yourself in those positions and working through them and not even always at like 100% intensity either. Sort of like wrestling chess, so to speak. You just get comfortable in those positions. Sarukian, um, not that I would say he's a folk style guy. He's, 
He's not from the U.S. He's probably never wrestled a folk style match in his life, but his wrestling, at least on the feet, looked a little more like conventional folk style. Uh, Gamrot was a little more of the, the scrambling stuff. And that's not to say that Gamrot's fundamentals aren't good. They're very good. And that's not to say that Suruki can't scramble because it takes two good scrambles to make those fun scrambles, even if one guy ends up winning those scrambles. Now, Jason, in our preview, we talked about how Gamrot is more of the striker and Sarukian the wrestler, but it ended up Sarukian winning the exchanges and Gamrot having to adapt to more wrestling to win the fight. So it seemed like Sarukian came in with the right game plan that he might need to outstrike Gamrot, which he did. What was so effective about Sarukian striking? Because up until now, he didn't even need it. Well, he has great fundamental hand position. He keeps his hands up high. Um, he doesn't telegraph his punches. He's got an excellent left hook, and he showed us a pretty educated jab, at least in the first two rounds. He, he, he moved away from it a little bit later, but you know there were uh, excellent one-one-twos to start off that first round, um, and he built off of that, built off of those attacks with some great kicks to the body, always attacking Gamrot's strong side. So, you know, whatever open side he power kick to the body, and he was able to. To, to land those quite effectively. So he was working with like a multi-pronged attack and mixing in his wrestling in the first two rounds quite effectively, even if he wasn't getting the takedowns. He was still beating Gamrot to his hips a couple of times, scored the takedown in the first round. And he, he went in there with like the intention of using some of his very, very fundamentally solid striking to set up some of his wrestling. Now let's be honest. Neither gassed out. They were both so fucking good, but Sarukian did slow down just a tad, which in such a tightly contested fight makes a difference. So Jason, with all those kicks and power double attempts, did you start to worry that Sarukian might tire a bit? Yeah, for sure. Especially in like the very, very first sequence, right? Do you remember that when the wrestling opens up with a brilliant shot block shot sequence that has Gamrot throwing a two-three combination, Sarukian ducking under with just a, a, a very well-timed double leg that looked like it beat Gamrot pretty cleanly to his hips. Then you see Grant Gamrot show some stout defense and some really, really heavy hips and sort of stop Sarukian's shot right in his tracks. And then it, this is what's great about the whole sequence is it continues to build and Gamrot hits his own like, high C attempt and is met with a, an excellent sprawl from Sarukian. And Sarukian tries for the front headlock. And just for that split second that he gets his elbow just a little bit too deep, Gamrot hits a real nice sucker drag immediately. No hesitation. What's a sucker drag? Sucker drag where you pull that elbow, you kind of pull your, turn your head away, and then reach around to the far lat and take their momentum and run them through as a defense count, defensive counter to the front headlock position. And what was beautiful about that is that that sucker drag, immediately after it, he, he hits it with no hesitation and then gets a big positional correction from Saruki. Then Gamrot responds, and this is what I loved about all these sequences. Gamrot responds with his own lower leg attack and does a great job moving Sarukian around, keeping him off balance, and doing the good transitions, coming up the leg to the knee, elevating the knee, elevates the single. Then Sarukian just shows ridiculous balance and flexibility while he defends and fights the hands, and then both fighters separate. And that is the first 45 goddamn seconds of the fight. <laughs> That's first. That's all that I described happened in the first forty-five seconds, um, and so when you ask if I thought some of those power kicks, some of those heavy kicks to the body, um, and some of those, like, he he likes to attack straight on with that double leg, especially baiting out like a, a like a real, reactive counter double. Yes, I was certain that it was going that fatigue would have to set in at some point, and still. He still fought as fresh as any fighter that fights with that kind of style that I've ever seen. I mean, it was really, really impressive. And yes, he did slow, but you know, he still was, was effective throughout against just a ridiculously game Gamrod who came in with an excellent game plan and adapted incredibly well in the later half of the fight. Now, before we started recording, you were saying something about how this fight to you represents what MMA should look like now or what the future of MMA could be. Can you elaborate on that? Not only was I saying that it's some of the best wrestling from an offensive, defensive, and counter-offense perspective, 
Um, but because wrestling is part of fighting, whether anyone wants to admit it or not, and both Gamera and Sarukian have complementary striking skills and excellent cardio, I really believe it's how fighting is supposed to look when mixed martial arts is done correctly, when it is fucking done correctly, and not simply influenced by swanging and banging and just bleed entertainment pressure put on by Dana and the UFC brass. And I hope the MMA media and talking heads continue to give the fight the credit it deserves because it was fucking brilliant. And I also hope some coaches open their eyes into understanding like wrestling doesn't have to be lay and pray if you work complementary skill sets. And you also teach people to transition effectively and not just try to blast through hips all the time, muscling body locks, muscling bad double leg entries, bad single legs, and a race to fucking nowhere. You know, if you have like if you have some sort of critical path that is building to something, if it's logical, and you, you can you can grow it and you can build it. And if you're a good enough coach and teacher, um, you should be at the UFC level if you got UFC fighters under your belt or under your banner, then uh, you should be able to teach it and replicate it. Unfortunately I'm just not seeing that enough. But having seen it now, uh, in this last fight, man, it really, really made me. I couldn't be more pleased. Yeah, I think we all were talking about how we've never seen an MMA fight like this or look like this before. It's almost like getting a glimpse into what MMA could look like 30 years from now. Right, and isn't that what I always bitch about? Like, I, I get it. I'm a complainer and a bit of a hater, right? But <laughs> that's what I, what I complain about is because they, they say wrestling is boring. It doesn't have to be like wrestling is a part of fighting and it's an essential part of fighting. And if you plan for it and you develop it and you develop it correctly and you have the cardio to support it, then, you know, it can be, it can be brilliant. And that brilliance was on display with Gamrot and Saruki. Now, Zach, what the hell was Gamrot doing in those scrambles? Because you could just not hold them down. Just moving, looking for hip separation, looking for angles, looking for different grips. It's, so, uh, hip separation, um, the bottom fighter getting, creating some space between their hips and the top fighter's hips. Uh, when the top fighter is able to, uh, you know, kill that space in between hips, that's when they can create pressure. So that's why Gamrot was rolling and it, it might have looked like he was kind of, you know, being a wild man going for broke, but there was a method to the madness. You know, if you just keep on rolling, even if it's only a couple of millimeters here, a couple of millimeters there, if you keep rolling, it's going to add up. And then you're, you're going to have the space, you're going to have more, more and more space to move. Now, did you see Gamrot using a lot of leg passing? The one um, skill set I like seeing in MMA compared to uh, wrestling is those, those leg entanglements and those leg passing situations. Because um, when, you, when you take away pinning, you can, you're a little more free to work from your back. You're a little more free to work different attacks when, when you can attack submissions. So there's just more opportunities to develop and fully flesh out that game. Oh, so you're saying because in MMA, there's no such thing as pinning, leg passing, and that hip separation is more important and it's more available. Yeah. In their wrestling, did it seem like one was exerting more energy than the other? I don't know if necessarily more energy, but Sarukian was definitely a little uh, more aggressive the first few rounds, where Gamrot was a little more conservative those few rounds. Um, again, this was Sarukian's first five-round fight. It's been a while for Gamrot, but he has seen some five-rounders. So he, he's seen those extra 10 minutes before. In terms of energy spend, I mean, we saw some great chain wrestling just throughout the entire fight from both fighters. Um, and that's what like led to some of those, those scrambles. And that it is, and Zach is right to his point. Like that is fundamental to high level wrestling and high level being college and college and beyond. Um, and we need to see more of that, uh, in MMA. You heard Felder and the rest of the commentary team say neither fighter is settling for position that it was true. They're not, but they weren't because they know what the fuck to do in those positions. Whereas other fighters who don't take wrestling that seriously will, will uh, concede to go to their back in whether it's guard, rubber guard, or whatever they, they attempt to do, 
Yeah, a lot of other fighters don't have the same wrestling chops, and, I, and Zach isn't wrong when he shits on some of the wrestling ability, wrestling prowess of some of these fighters who are in the the top ten. It's very some of it is very formulaic and me, mediocre at best, and they're using their physicality and and some of the other things to to make up for what what they lack in technique. You know, but what we saw with with the energy spend of Gamron versus the energy spend of Sarukian is that the chain wrestling in a great wizard from Gamron and the, the sucker drag to the low leg attack that he showed multiple times. It was really great to see in a fight. And it was really good to see him hit like shit that if you make that angle, he was able to turn the corner and really force Sarukian to work extremely hard to improve his position. So it was being efficient and technical in certain situations and it's, it's hard when someone is on top of you holding you down to try to stand up get up drills are very very tiring escape drills are very tiring and you have someone who is good at holding wrist control and creating heavy top pressure so where Sarukian was sort of attacking through the hips initially you were seeing some of the lower leg attacks from Gamrot and even the ones where he was like hitting like double legs at the hips, immediately he'd windshield wiper his legs. He'd make that angle. And his transitions allowed him to finish in ways that were more energy efficient, a little less labor intensive. And I think that's why you started to see his wrestling look like it was um, uh, in the rounds three, four, and five. His wrestling looked to be that much better, that much ahead of Sarukians. Now, before this fight, Gamros said that his five-round experience will make a huge difference. And it seems like he's adding to what Zach had already said, which is that adding extra time isn't just about cardio or isn't even about pace. It changes the whole strategy you need to use. And it seemed like Gamrot, now in hindsight, was trying to say that I understand how I have to change my strategy for a five-round fight, whereas I don't think Sarukian knows how to do that yet because he hasn't been in there which now seems very prescient. It seems like Gamrot was right about that, even though I do think Sarukian should have taken the nod, but I think if Sarukian was more experienced with five rounds, it would have been that much more clear-cut. But Jason, let me ask you this. What did either show you in this fight that you wish you saw more in MMA fights, especially at the high levels? Well, a big thing is, this isn't necessarily what they showed um, individually, but what they show collectively is that getting wrestlers, good wrestlers to look polished with their striking seems more readily accomplished uh, than turning excellent strikers into polished wrestlers. Whether there's an aversion to it or some sort of like mental block in coaching um, or some sort of expertise bias, I don't fucking know and I don't care. But this is an MMA dynamic that we're starting to see more of that Getting wrestlers to look polished with their striking is more easily accomplished than uh, turning excellent strikers into polished wrestlers. That's what I'm starting to notice. And if you can get good wrestlers to understand the whens, the whys, and hows to do things with complementary skill sets, it actually makes the, the some of the wrestling entries a little easier and a little bit, a little less labor intensive. So. Zach, does anyone in the world want to wrestle for 15 fucking straight minutes? Absolutely not. Right? It's really fucking hard. You know, a, a college match is, is seven minutes, and those get exhausting. Those seven minutes are ridiculously hard. You wouldn't want to double that, then add one. So so you're starting to see some of these guys. Like, I'm tired of seeing really good wrestlers who come in from the college level. Um like beat the shit out of someone for the first five minutes, take down, take down, take down, then get guillotine in two and a half minutes into the second round, which is seven and a half minutes of wrestling. And at that point you're completely spent. And then someone just grabs a shitty guillotine and you lose. Like I, those days should be done. Understanding that I think uh, Armin and Gamrot made that very, very clear that if you work some things um, sequentially and build, striking setups because of your wrestling and wrestling setups because of your striking you can be much more effective and fucking plenty efficient and it doesn't have to be that hard it doesn't have to be that much of an energy spend 
And you can be you can be incredibly dangerous with some solid striking fundamentals and excellent wrestling that really can carry you pretty far. Now, if you're just a wild man, just throwing caution to the wind and double leg, double leg, double leg, you're going to tire because I mean, you can. Tr- no one can push that 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 kind of pace for 15, let alone 25 minutes in a in an MMA fight. You just can't. Now, Zach, you mentioned things that you normally see in college to international wrestling at the high levels. But in this fight, what did either show you that you normally don't see in MMA or not see enough? Keeping good body position as uh, as best they can. And when they did end up at a position, they were very quick to correct their position. They were transitioning quickly between their different moves and holds instead of you know these little pauses that that sometimes you see with, with a lesser wrestler or a lesser grappler. These are, these are things I teach to, you know, 15 year old high school kids. So, so I also expect adult professional athletes to be able to do these things. Yeah, there it is. So then as a counter example, what was lacking in Rodolfo Vieira's wrestling where he couldn't get any takedowns? Maybe he's more of an example of the type of wrestling in MMA that you hate. Yes. Um, it, uh, uh, one big thing is he shoots from too far away, so that alone kills the shot a lot. Because I mean, the, all they got, all your opponent has to do if you're shooting from too far away is block with their hands, move their feet just a little bit. I mean, he did most of the defense for them by shooting from that far out. When he does get when he does get in, there is that little bit of a lag between his shot and his finish, and when his first attempt at the finish does get stopped, which is going to happen when you're fighting somebody who can defend. Like Curtis, as much as I'm kind of going to be crapping on Vieira's wrestling right now, Curtis was defending well. And that's part of what was making Vieira look so bad in the wrestling. What was he doing? Again, fundamental things. Um, using the wizard, um, using good first-line defense with head and hands and going to look a little bit different in wrestling, uh, uh, excuse me, in MMA compared to wrestling because wrestling, most shots are going to be coming from tie-ups that are and stances that you don't really see in MMA. So the theory is going to be the same, but the application is going to look a little different. But still, that's something of just good fundamental lines of defense. And when... Vieira's first attempt on those finishes was getting stuffed. He didn't really have a second attempt. He was just bailing to guard. And maybe that's fine in BJJ, but MMA is just too developed now at this point for that to be reliable at a high level. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Now, Viera is one of the all-time best in no-gi grappling. Jason, why is that not carrying over to his MMA? Um, I, I think part of what Zach just alluded to is it a point that I made in previous uh, episodes that there's this, I call it a hitch. Like their entries are fine, but then there's a pause while they think about what they do. Now watch Gamrot. Like Gamrot's hitting that sucker drag. And then whenever the, his opponent, whenever Armin corrects and the like, counter rotates, he understands that to counter rotate, you've got to put pressure off that near foot. Now the drag arm that's going around the back, he circles back down, bang to a little no nothing single leg like ankle pickup. That hitch is everything. It gives another person, especially with, when there's a cage involved, you need to get clean with your finishes. And the only way you get clean is chaining things together sequentially with, without that hitch, a continuation of motion, continuing to make your opponent um, kind of correct position. And if you think you're going to get, this is the, the beauty of, like, and when, when Zach talks about like legit D1ers, it's their second, third, and fourth movement 
that is allowing them, unless it's Jordan Burroughs, which is a blast through everybody, but it's the second, third, and fourth movement that is completing the takedown. So as they're, you see guys hit like that little, you see guys hit drags all the time. And when guys come up, they'll step up and follow up and hit a nice body lock off of it. Now, I'm not saying that 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 is easy shit for some of these individuals to learn in a a few years because wrestling is very tactile and some people just don't take to it the same way. But to completely ignore it while others have it is going to be, I think, is a fool's errand. And I think they're they, rather than saying wrestling is boring and no way to get a contract in the UFC, you're just thinking you're understanding that like, people are getting too good as professional athletes to be one and done with your initial takedown attempt. Unless, like I said, unless you're Jordan Burroughs. Now let's move on to the domination of Shafkat Rachmanov over Neil Magny. The Ozmakers really nailed this fight. Jason, you said Rachmanov is a problem at 170. What did he show you in this fight in what was on paper his toughest test? Uh, he is incredibly confident. We talked about self-belief the other day. But this motherfucker has pistons for fists. Like He just punches. And you see, oh, well, I don't know what, pounds of pressure per square inch. I don't know how. His punches, when he hits the mat instead of his opponent, when he missed Magny's head, I figured he just fractured his hand. He hit so goddamn hard. And it, it, he he has this like relaxed countenance and relaxed movement. And even his hands aren't in perfect position all the time. And when you try to engage him, it's almost immediate. Once he gets something to compute, it's kill switch engaged. And he... I think he's exceptionally strong and hits so very hard and throws straight punches and finds accuracy on those power shots that, you know, it's a, it's a holy shit mo- moment for guys, even guys this season, does Magni in there? You know, when that shit starts happening to you, that's the thing. Like if you're in the UFC and you're Neil Magni, what do you win nine fights straight one time? And he's just, he got wins over absolute legends. If you make someone look a little panicked, that has the ability to weather a storm and fight um, 15 to 25 minutes like Magni can. Magni doesn't get tired, but still he looked he looked a little panicked early. And I think that tells you about the, the skill set that uh, Rachmanov is working with. Now, Magni didn't do anything wrong in this fight, but it's like you can't get away with even feeler techniques against Rachmanov. Everything has to be dialed in and have a reason behind it because if you're just kicking to get a feel for range or just to get a reaction. Well, we saw in both rounds, that's all it took for Rachmanov to take over. Jason, how do you fight a guy like this where you can't really make any mistakes or even get sloppy? Well, I'll, I'll tell a real quick story. I wrestled Virtus Jones in college. who was a two-time national finalist. He was on my team at West Virginia University. And when I first put hands on him, he must, if, there, if the score was 100 to 1, I'd be being generous. Like, I couldn't get him off me. He was who just so far superior, so fast, so skilled, so so agile, and at at the at end of the, I don't know what was like the worst four minute ass whipping I've ever taken before I conceded. He looked at me. I said, "I go, I'm all thumbs today." And he goes, "No, bud, it's not you, it's me." <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> they don't know, but they're gonna. <laughs> and I was like what the fuck did you just do to me? <laughs> and, and he did the same thing to Sean Haig. He did the same thing to John Koss, who was an All-American. Um, Sean Haig was the, the number one recruit. Sometimes you get a guy who just has like legit physical gifts. And I think uh, Rachmanov is one of those guys. Like He hits hard. He's physically strong. And like, he's not like super shredded, and super jacked. doesn't have traps starting at his ears like a roided up Vitor Belfort. He is just... He's just built for fighting. One of those guys that was heavy-handed. I don't know if his bones are, are lead or what the fuck's going on there. But when he punches people, you see them just sort of like shift and give ground immediately. Grizzled fighters who like pressure at high pace, like Magni. And I'm really, really interested to see um, how like how the top three and four and five guys in that division do against a fighter with those kind of physical attributes that just seemingly is built 
for fighting. And I'll say this, as much as I love uh, Yuri Prohaska and as entertaining as he is, I think uh, a, a more naturally gifted fighter is uh, Rachmanov. And I, I, was, I was real hesitant to give him the love at first. I told you, you brought him up, you brought him up to me, and I don't think I even responded to one text. And one time, I'm like, ah, and then I, I just kept watching him, and I was like, oh, I missed this one. I fucking certainly did. <laughs> Sometimes it's not you, it's them, and I think that that was the problem. <laughs> Zach, here we have another Central Asian wrestler. What are your thoughts about his wrestling? He's another good athlete who does simple things well. Starting to see a pattern here. This is this is. Usually, what the highest level looks like, really good athletes doing simple things really, really well. I mean, Jordan Burroughs' big move is a double leg. That's the first takedown most people learn when they wrestle. He's just the very, very best at it. I, uh, I really like the way he was working from top. Uh, he seems like he's got real uh, good hips and real heavy hips. Um, we were talking about hip separation earlier. He's real tight with his hips at all times. And he's really bearing down with those hips. The fight was at 170 pounds. He, he, the, uh, with how heavy his hips were, he might have felt like 270 pounds to Magni from, uh, on the ground. We talked earlier about how there's no pinning in MMA. Well, in a sense, there is. It doesn't end the match. But if you're pinning down somebody's neck and shoulders to the ground, it's really hard to play guard without freeing your neck and shoulders first. A couple other things I like that I saw, um, he was um, hook, hooking around to, uh, wa- uh, one leg up like ar- around the knee. looked kind of reminded me of like a Navy ride from folk style wrestling where he's hooked, but not like so deep that his arm's in danger. So Good way to control, transition to your uh, next hold, your next position. At one point, it even looked like he had a near side cradle locked up. It was kind of hard to tell to see if he actually had his hand locked, but the positioning was pretty similar. One thing that I noticed during the fight where Neil Magny was on his back and he was right by his corner and Neil is looking at his corner to Jason's point, kind of panicked. And his corner says, just get to any position. Just get to any defensive position that you can. Get to guard if you can. They didn't even have any concrete thing for him to do to get up. They were just basically telling him to find anything. Just get anywhere, anywhere but wherever you are right now. Because that's how bad Rachmanov was controlling him. It's some, sometimes you're just overmatched. And Zach, I got a question for you. Have you ever, you ever been in the, in the corner? Have you ever been coaching uh, a wrestling match and then you know, the, they flip the coin and they say your decision, the other guy defers to your guy and your, your guy looks at you and goes, what do I want? Top, bottom, neutral. And you're like, ah, fuck, man. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. Like we're, we're outmatched here. We're outgunned. Like it, we pick bottom. We're going to get, we're going to get, we're going to give up near fall points. If we pick neutral, we're going to get taken down. I mean, we're, uh, you know, if we, if we pick top, he's going to escape. Doesn't matter. Sometimes you're just outmatched, and you know w- when that happens. Sometimes you got to say, "Hey, hey, buddy, do what you can. <laughs> any any position. Like, let's just find one. Let's just any position. I get it." Yeah. Sometimes you, you know, you, me and uh, the other coach with in the corner, we just look at each other. You kind of just shrug or say, "Yeah, it doesn't really matter what you pick. You're, you're, you're kind of screwed." Yeah, man. At that point, you do you, man. <laughs> I wish I could be more of a help at this point, but you just can't. So we had some technical difficulties. Zach was disconnected. He's back. He might sound different. The reason why is because he had to get a different microphone. So that's why. Now, one thing that analysts didn't pick up on was Rachmaninoff's cage wrestling. You clinch him and put him up against the fence, which is MMA 101 to score some points. But against Rachmaninoff, he has a series of trips and takedowns from being pinned against the fence. Then on the ground, he won't let you use the cage to get up. There was one point where Neil had his feet against the cage while on his back to push off and scramble. But as soon as Magny's feet was getting in position to push, Rachmanov calmly grabbed it and shoved it aside and then rode Magny into the next transition. It makes so much sense to do that, yet I've never seen anyone do that in MMA before. 
I texted you, Jason, saying how freaky calm Rachmaninoff is. And it's that calmness that allows him to make clear-headed decisions and see everything. Now, Zach, one thing I talked to you about was Rachmaninoff's head pressure on Magni, which eventually set up a guillotine choke. But he was doing that throughout the fight. In wrestling, what is the strategy behind constantly pushing and pulling down on the head and that head pressure? You know, if you're trying to snap your opponent's head into the mat, of course they're going to resist that. And so that constant strain on the ne- on their neck and traps, even if they're real, real strong, if you make them carry your weight for long enough, it's going to wear on them. It might not be right away. It might take a while, but it's going to wear on them. And once your neck and your traps are exhausted, it doesn't matter if you're good. It doesn't matter if you're tough. If, if you've got nothing left in the tank, You've, you've got no strength left. And there's, they're kind of out of options. You're just exhausted. Maybe not like a, like a cardio sense where you're breathing real heavy, but Maggie's neck is probably, was probably pretty sore when he woke up in the morning. And to, to Zach's point, that's a skill I don't see people do. People aren't as heavy on the head anymore since they've gotten away a little bit from the tie clinch because um, there's some wrestling vulnerabilities there. But like hanging heavy on the head, Wearing out the posterior chain, starting with the neck to the traps to the the erectus spinae and the 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 muscles in the lower back. Like when you can start to wear that shit out, you start to see everything fall apart. You know, and that that heavy on the head that it starts with like the muscles in your fingers to your wrist to your forearms, and you get everything working in sync. And you make them carry your weight. You come heavy with that pressure. You have what I call it, what we call in wrestling, heavy hands, right? Yeah. And then when they come with that counter, right? And they come with that counter pressure because no one wants their head pulled down. And when they bring that head up, bang, there's elbows there. Or there's rolling your head underneath their jaw and controlling that position because nobody wants to be like just handled physically. So they fight you. And, you know, you use your tools, you use what you have. And you wear on them physically. And then if they do have, come with some counter pressure, well, that puts us in a position. And what do I say all the time? If behavior is predictable, it is controllable. And we want to do that. We want to predict where they're going to go. And if we can use our physical tools to get them there, do so. But, I mean, so much of this sport is born of, like, just, like, piss and testosterone and not enough strategy. A lot of that fight mentality, like, ridiculous bravado bullshit like should be built into like you want to control someone's head as they go their body goes you want to win that hand fight that head position fight if you make all those little battles about the greater battle i don't know what you use as a tool for motivation the machismo or whatever fucking box you want to tap into then then like get them working to some sort of critical path to build off and I just don't see enough of it. But to, to Zach's point, I guarantee you, like, there's a reason why with four or five seconds left, uh, Magni was like, hey, man, yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. Man. I'm good. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think about what Zach was saying about how tired his neck must have already been before that choke even came. And prior to that, that constant head pressure was killing every Magni single leg attempt. Magni kept trying to get out by going to single, which is very common in MMA. And just that head pressure made him like hesitate until Rachmanov gave him some clearance, like gave him the room to come into him. But that was just to come right into the choke. Yeah. Again, that, that posterior chain is so incredibly important. And once it starts to seize up, just because those muscles are so taxed, like most fighters, most wrestlers, most grapplers are sitting ducks at that point. You're not seeing a whole lot of funk when the head and the neck and the, th- the traps and the back don't want to move anymore. Zach, you mentioned how Rachmanov's top wrestling impressed you. Were there any fundamental or sneaky techniques he was using that most fans might have missed? Really like the way he was kind of, you know, um, hooking one arm around uh, one of Magny's legs, you know, kind of putting the crook of his elbow around like, like knee level on the leg. Uh, in wrestling, uh, there's something similar called a navy ride. It would be on you'd be attacking the far leg and elevating that, forcing some back exposure and scoring points that way. Uh, he used it more from kind of side control, attacking it on the near leg, and it kind of seemed like it. Magni had a hard time 
recovering back to guard because his, his dear leg was kind of was tied up. But at the same time, Rachmanov didn't have his arms so deep that Magny could have tied that arm up with his, with his legs. Rachmanov is not fast nor high volume, yet he's had 16 fights, 16 wins, 16 finishes, and only one of his fights went to the third round. Now, I think a part of this is his brutal ground and pound. That's not his main thing, and he doesn't spam punches. But he does something most other fighters can't do in the modern era, which is to stand over you while punching down at you, which then means at maximum force. And the reason people don't do this anymore is because when you try, people will sweep you, single leg you, or get back up. But so far, his opponents can't do that. At best, they recover guard, and even that takes a while. Jason, how is he doing this, where he's standing over opponents like old-school Tito Ortiz against people who didn't know how to wrestle or do BJJ and just hovering over them and just punching down at them while standing? Well, see, that's a great question because, I mean, I'm not sure if his torso is longer than the normal person's torso because his, his arms seem semi-long, but not, like, not overly long. Uh, but yet he fights long from that, like, that top position. And when he, that's why I really thought he might break his hand punching through, through the mat because that, that strike zone, he is like, normally you're punching, like someone's head is about seven or eight inches in circumference, right? So you got to figure he's going to land about four inches short if he's punching through the center of a human being's skull that's on the mat. But yet he's punching through that mat. Like he's getting extension and torque on that motherfucker and you're like whoa what's this guy doing i guess if you're getting concussed you can't really sweep you have to be present in that moment what is the initial threat <laughs> let's mitigate that initial threat and you know that's what you have to contend with first before you can build off of it and i think i think that's what when we we sort of like in jazz talk about the corner advice of like just get to any position but like you have to get to something at least fundamental for us to work with you uh, <laughs> off of that. Um, until then, it's just like, oh, sorry, man. <laughs> Give me something I can work with here. <laughs> right? I think part of it is also something Zach spoke to earlier about hip pressure, where once he's standing over you and you have your legs kind of draped over his thighs, he will immediately start driving his hip forward. You'll see that. And then he'll walk forward with his hips and then stand over you where your butt is off the ground, and then he'll just start hammering you. Zach, have you seen that type of hip pressure before? And what else is he doing from there that makes it so hard for him to get knocked off his feet? I want to say it's almost like inverted leg riding, so to speak. Like he didn't have like a leg in, so to speak. He didn't have legs in at all. But he was kind of, the way he was you know, really leaning and heavy with those hips, keeping them tight. Similar concept. Um, I think he actually uh, was walked his hips so far forward and stacked Magni so vertically on onto his neck and shoulders that I mean, I mean, it's very common to see fighters kind of be able to to kick away, create some space, and stand back up from there. But if you're stacked as as vertically as Magni was, that's that's a really hard thing to do. If you love the Southpaw Project. Please support us and help us get paid for our labor, by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, he was basically pancaked, it seemed like. And the analysts were talking about those up kicks, those up kicks, but they did land, but he was so pancaked and his hips were already off the ground and he was so stacked on his neck. Those up kicks didn't really have that much power because Magni didn't even have the ground contact to generate power, unlike Rachmana's punches from there. Yeah, as a matter of physics, I think that Rachmanov put himself in a more at physically advantageous position. And whenever you got to deal with Magni's length, certainly, right? His legs, his arms, pretty lanky individual. But even when um, you would see 
Rachmanov do a good job of popping his hips forward and Rachmanov being very, very vertical until he decided to go. And when he went, he went hard uh, with his ground and pound. And he's for someone who punches that fucking powerfully, he's very, very accurate. And even the one that he misses gives his opponent pause because they basically he basically punched through the goddamn mat and made them like really take stock of like where their head was. So you you stop up kicking and you immediately what, what you address the primary threat and that's the guy with the piston fists trying to trying to flatten your fucking skull. Now let's talk about next week's card, UFC 276. We have Israel Adesanya defending his middleweight title against Jared Cannonier. Cannonier is the underdog and it's really more about what can he bring to this fight to dethrone Adesanya because the assumption is Adesanya will win. So Jason, what does Cannonier bring to this fight that's different from other Adesanya opponents? I mean, they've all got a bit of power, but Cannonier has, I think when I talked about lead in their bones, he's, he's one of those guys that can just, he naturally can just fucking crack. He really can. And, but as much as I'd love to see you know, Izzy, who's now the company man, uh-huh, like take a beating from someone like QAnon Cannoneer, <laughs> um, or, or let them like beat the shit out of each other to a draw, <laughs> so then either one could take home a win bonus. Um, I, I don't think I don't think Cannoneer is diverse enough of a threat. But I'll tell you what, he does hit very very hard. But I, a lot of his punch, he's he's a pretty good kicker, but he doesn't do things with the same kind of technical proficiency that that Izzy does, and I think you're going to see. Cannonier get chewed up a little bit, not um, uh, not too differently than you saw Paul Acosta get uh, get roughed up by him, you know, eating the leg kicks early. Izzy's got the goods. I mean, he can hit you with both hands. He can kick you. He can play. It doesn't matter. You know, and you're not just gonna you're just not gonna steamroll him with with cage pressure either. He's too savvy at distance. And he also has the chin too when he needs it. He really does. He can take he can take a punch. He can take a punch, and again, it goes, you know, whether he not, whether or not he has a cast iron jaw, he's also able to stay calm and composed when he's in the thick of it, and to be able to handle like that high intensity shit in real time and be and have that pocket presence, that changes the way. It's not if you get hit, it's how you get hit, and how he gets hit is just a little bit differently. You know, being in there with guys like. Uh, like Whitaker uh, and uh, Romero, and even though they only threw like twelve punches total in that fight, and we've seen the story of Izzy's career. Is he he very rarely gets hit flush. He just doesn't, and he's so good with the counter that if you try to overcommit to the third and fourth shot, he clips you. Zach, to beat Adesanya, you probably need some takedowns. Has Adesanya shown you anything where he might be open to a certain takedown? So uh, it seems like Adesanya gets up. Not that he gets taken down very much at all, because even though he's not a great wrestler per se, um, what he does well is manage distance in a way that makes it really hard to initiate wrestling sequences in the first place. I mean, if if Yoel Romero, who is a world champion freestyle wrestler, isn't taking you down, it, it wasn't because he had wrestled Romero. Was, Romero was unable to initiate was not getting to those sequences and risky to try to get to get to those sequences uh getting that um like that without asanya but it, and even if you can like that's not to say he's he's incompetent there but in close up against the cage is where he's least comfortable and that's and he's getting taken down by marvin vittori who and he's not like He's not terrible, but Vittori was was a lot more aggressive than Romero. That's why he was able to get some takedowns, despite not being anywhere near the wrestler that Romero is. But again, that being that aggressive without Adesanya poses its risks, and scoring those takedowns doesn't still isn't going to guarantee you the decision. Gave up those takedowns and beat Vittori anyway. Do you remember anything notable about Cannoneer's wrestling? Does he have any offensive wrestling? Not really. I, <laughs> he barely even attempts takedowns. Like his, his wrestling, most of the, he does have some wrestling confidence, but it's mostly 
in a defensive sense. You know, he was defending takedowns against Derek Brunson, who was a Division II All-American. I mean, not Division One, but Division II All-Americans are really, really good. The Division II All-Americans kicked my ass the other day. He did manage to take down Brunson in that fight-ending sequence, but Brunson was already hurt bad when the takedown happened. So, I, mean, I just don't see Cannoneer suddenly becoming a wrestler now. Now, what Cannoneer is what five nine? I mean, I think they make they might they might lie and say he's five ten every once in a while. Um, but the Izzy's length and that wide cage stance whenever he spreads his legs and digs his heels into like the, the area between the cage and the mat, he's real hard to take down against the cage. And guys burn a lot of energy like racing to a fucking red light, thinking that they're going to, and they just push them against the cage. And whenever they separate, their arms are a little bit taxed. And I think that's what that's what Izzy does incredibly well. When you try to force a sequence, a wrestling sequence, and you wear yourself out, and you try to take the 15, 20, 30 seconds to get some of that lactic acid out of your arms, get some of that blood that's pumped into your biceps, shoulders, and traps, um, he's, he starts to put it on you. When you want that gentleman, gentleman's agreement for a little bit of a break in between those those sequences, in between those exchanges, he doesn't give it to you. Um, and that's what I think it's going to look like whenever they fight. There's going to be some smart pressure from Cannoneer, but you know, he's a heavily muscled individual. He's very, very, very strong. And he hits hard. And unless he catches uh, Izzy flush, or even just clips him in a vulnerable spot, then I, I see, I see Izzy chewing him up. Then we have the trilogy fight between featherweight champ Alexander Volkanovsky versus former champ Max Holloway. Now, each of their fights have been close. I actually had Holloway winning the second fight. I'd say Holloway did more damage in their first fight, but lost on points. So even though Holloway has lost twice, this fight is still intriguing for those reasons. And because Max has beaten the hell out of everyone else, but so has Volkanovsky. Now, since this is their third fight, we don't have to go too deep into this because a lot of this we've already said. But Jason, what does Holloway have to do this time to seal the victory where there's no doubts? Well, there's, I don't know if it's possible against a fight that's so so competitive and so closely contested. I mean, I, I, if, I had that, if I had an idea, I would, I would give their camp a phone call and say, look, I used to call Coach Paul Felder. You should listen to me. I, I have nothing for you, man. And I've thought about it. It. The stuff that, that Max Holloway does he, and does well has worked against Volkanovski, but it's also left him a little bit vulnerable to some of the leg attacks and the leg kicks and some of the, the shifting pressure of Volkanovski. So you wouldn't ask either one of them to fight differently because what both of them have had success against each other. In each fight, again, all the Max fans think Max won. All the Volkanovski fans thinks thinks uh, Volkanovski won. I, I I go back and forth. I've watched the fights multiple times, and their skills are so comparable and so they're so like, closely matched, so evenly matched that it's really really hard to come up with with something that that isn't more of the same. The the parry leg kick exchanges from Volkanovski really, really worked for him, but he also got picked apart with the jab every once in a while because he was a little bit too reliant on that parry. But those leg kicks probably won him the fight. So it was, I mean, what do you say? You know, the same thing that made him vulnerable is the same thing that, that, that probably got him the decision, probably edging the decision in both fights. So, shit, man, I don't know. <laughs> I've got nothing for you, man. It's what I do for a living. What's interesting about Volkanovski is if you watch him fight, it looks like he's open to a knee or to an uppercut, but you think that, and then it's hard to catch him with those two. No, because his reflexes are just stupid. They're so good. His reflexes, and it's hard to be reflexive when you when you are initiating a movement. That's why counter striking and counter fighting and counter wrestling is like it's you know there's there's comfort there. Because it's a lot easier to be reactive, but he initiates and then can shift and respond reflexively as well as anyone in the midst of a powerful and dynamic movement. That's all Volkanovsky is, other than his parry and his lower leg kicks, is that shifting 
hand fighting, jockeying for position, feints and drawing out, um, drawing out your counters and then capitalizing on them. He's able to make those real time decisions because I think his synapses and his neuromuscular junctions and all that shit is just a little bit heightened. So one thing I saw recently was Volkanovsky sparring with Israel Adesanya leading up to both of their fights. And first of all, the fact that Volkanovsky spars with Adesanya, that in itself tells you a lot because it's 145 and 185. It's not even like the next division up. And secondly, even though it's friendly sparring, probably not that friendly, probably more competitive, despite Volkanovsky being that much shorter than Adesanya and Adesanya has that reach advantage over people in his own division, Volkanovsky was still getting in on Adesanya. And I was just like, Volkanovsky can even get in on Adesanya during sparring? You know, so that's a problem, right? But Jason, have either Holloway or Volkanovsky shown you any improvements since their second fight? They both continue to improve what they're already spectacular at. And that's the thing. That's why like, there's no one in, in the division that I see at 145 pounds at this point that can hold a candle to them. No, they're head and shoulders above the rest of the competition. You, see, you saw what Max did uh, and, and Volk did to um, Ortega. And Ortega's a handful for anyone in that division. You know? So to anyone that wants to, a title shot or a number one contender fight, I say be very, very careful what you wish for because after you get in there with either fighter, they tend to change the trajectory of your career. And it's not as always for the worst. Uh, so that's what you get when you get in there with with Volkanovski or Max Holloway. They just they just seem to have fighting figured out, and all they do is fight the best in the world. That's what happens when you're you're champ, and at this point, we might as well call him fucking co-champ, right? Rather than number one contender. That's how good Max Holloway is. So when you're champ and co-champ, and all you're doing is fighting the number one guy, the number one up and comer, the number one guy in the rankings, you're battle tested. Over and over and over. And no one's been able to close that distance. No one's really even been able to make them look human. What what I find strange is when I watch Poirier fight and I watch Max Holloway fight, in a million years I wouldn't put money on Poirier, but yet he he really handled Holloway. So you know, I guess in that sense, size does matter. But I, if I were a betting man and they were to fight again, Poirier and Holloway, I see Holloway taking it. He continues to improve and impress. Here's what I'll add to that. Because what gives me pause is that they both did get better from their last fight, which is amazing because they were already so good. But where Volkanovski got better in MMA, right? He got better in a lot of ways, like his kicking, his shifting, his punching, his wrestling seemed like they're better. He's like, his versatility got even better than before. Max got better, but in a very specialized way, which is his boxing has gotten better and better, which is why you pick him now over Dustin Poirier. But that's my concern is the breadth in which Volkanovsky has gotten better is much broader than the very specific way that Max got better. Oh, I agree with that. And the ability for the speed, quickness, and reflexes of Alexander Volkanovsky at this point in his career in his mid thirties or whatever, wherever he is, is amazing. Like he's quicker and faster than he was three and four fights ago against uh, KZ. He looked otherworldly. He looked so fast, so sharp, so well timed. And when all those things are firing, you know, he, camp management is something that I say is is often overlooked. His camp seems to have him dialed in. He seems to understand his body, understands the weight cut. And it comes in there looking better and better and better against the creme de la creme of the the top 145 pounders, which is one of the most competitive divisions in the entire UFC. When he first came in, he was actually a lot bigger. Like when he fought Chad Mendez or his first fight against Max Holloway, he was a lot bigger. So he leaned down to get faster. So to your point about camp management, he's figured out I'm even better in this shape. Agree, agree, one hundred percent. He's so good and so dialed in that if I some of the good I've had Jeff Lance, Anthony Terrell, I got some other young kids that I've worked with, one hundred forty five pounds, and if they offered me a title fight against Alexander Volkanovski for a quarter million for my fighter safety, I'd say no. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd fucking turn it down. 
I'd say, nah, I appreciate the 10%, the 25 grand I could take to the bank, but not worth it. It's just not worth it. Is that good? Now, Zach, wrestling has been a key part of Volkanovski's success, especially against Max Holloway. How would you describe Volkanovski as a wrestler? Yet another good athlete who does simple things well and keeps good position. Um, I think he might have wrestled a little Greco as a kid, and um, the way he wrestles in the clinch kind of does look like Greco. Again, even if he was never, you know, super serious or super advanced about Greco, these are pretty basic things in Greco. You know, good control with the underhook, uh, good control with the body lock. Um, even though there's um, trips from the body lock, there's no, you know, tripping in Greco. Uh, like Volkanovski um, tripped against the cage with the body lock, but he's he's and he is strong, but He's not just doing, you know, the uh, some the meathead middle school bear hug. He's pushing, pulling, get um, feeling the weight shift to, um, between your feet, and then he's hitting the and then he's hitting the trip. Uh, seems to have a, a real good um, feel for those shifts in weight, which I don't have that feel real well myself, but. The, uh, the fighters who do, those trips and those sweeps are going to be there. Even when he doesn't score the takedown, he's, again, working through these positions quickly. Now, wrestling up into an underhook or um, strikes off clinch breaks. He's, he's pretty much always throwing uh, strikes off every clinch break. It's, it's not chain wrestling in the sense of, you know, going from one shot to another shot. Uh, but conceptually, it's that same idea of chaining together techniques. My, uh, my youth wrestling coach used to tell us the best time to score is right after you score, you know, whether that's hitting your stand-up escape right into a takedown, that little split second of, oh, okay, uh, time to separate. Those little split seconds where, where a lot of people kind of, you know, mentally and physically pause, he's not pausing. He never does. That's a great point. That one second here, two seconds there where he's not pausing, that adds up over the course of a whole round, over the course of a whole fight. And it's it's as disruptive as it is disheartening. You can't catch a rhythm because every time he, there is that break and you try to reset, he's back in your shit. Whether he's punching you or kicking you, it doesn't matter. Like he's putting something in your face. And it's real, real tough. You know, like you're not you're not scared of that pressure. You just sort of wish it would go away for a minute just so you can like reassess shit. And you can't with him. And he takes that away. With all his other physical tools, it's a huge advantage. And to Zach's point, looking it up, yeah, you're right. He did train Greco-Roman very early and won a national title twice at the age of 12. And then he went into rugby at age 14 and he focused mainly on that. But it seemed like he kept training in Greco as a hobby while he was doing rugby to stay in shape during the offseason. And then through Greco is how he got introduced to MMA at age 22. So it was around age 22 where he started doing the wrestling MMA full time, no longer a hobby. So I guess he did have that wrestling background. It's a little bit unique for most people who are in MMA when they're a wrestler because it's something like they kept doing as their primary sport while they were going to school, where more like he was very high level when he was young and then he kept it up as a hobby sport while he had a different main sport. Though Greco is not the same as freestyle, not the same as folk. It seems like he relies a lot on leg attacks and going for double single legs now too. So how hard of a transition is that from going from Greco to doing more leg attacks in wrestling? Or is it more like just because they say somebody does Greco doesn't mean somebody only does Greco. Even when you're doing Greco, a lot of people still do freestyle. So I think it's... Um... One thing that some coaches I've uh, spoken to uh, have told me, and, and I think I agree with them, is Greco, um, the positioning, it just teaches good habits. You know, it makes you really aware of overextending your arm or bending over too much. And even though you're not shooting doubles in Greco, those are still good habits to have, even if you are shooting a double, because, you know, if you're bent, if you're bent over, too much, you're 
too or you're too overextended in freestyle or folk styles, you have a lot more options as far as what you can do about that. Greco, not so. Um, and I myself am learning a lot, uh, still learning a lot um, about Greco, but it's just a lot more dangerous to be in bad position in Greco because you can you can go freaking flying. So uh, in the clinch, um, Volkanovski keeps his elbows in a lot, uh, real tight until until he sees something that he wants, and, and then maybe it's an underhook. Then he'll take his underhook. You know, not really trying to force anything or overextend himself, just good positioning. And then if good positioning is what's already ingrained in you, especially as a good an athlete as Volkanovski is, it's going to be real easy to teach someone like that a double leg. All right. That's it for this episode. If you like what we do, sign up for the Patreon. We also have the Liberation Martial Arts Program if you want to train with us from wherever you are, you can also find that on our Patreon. You can find Southpaw merch at our store. You can find all pertinent links on the show notes. Thanks to Coach Zach for helping us on this episode. Did you want to tell people where they can find you online if they want to yell at you that you're being too hard on the wrestling of MMA fighters? Tell them to leave Hobbs out alone. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, um, if if you would like to if you would like to join my Reply Guy Club, it's it's always growing. Um, on Twitter, I am at Goldie Boy Tellum. That's G O L D J A B O Y T E L L E M. All right, I'll put that in the show notes. With all that said, thanks for listening. Always a pleasure, guys. Yep, this is fun. Mm-hmm.